So uh, great to see you tonight on a Saturday night of all things. I drove down from Louisville, Kentucky today where it was 80 degrees. I did not expect it to be raining. It was a little surprising, but yeah, I guess um, you never know. We actually need rain in, in Louisville right now. Um, so uh, Chandler's asked me to start by giving just briefly my testimony. So I'm gonna do that. Um, so I was raised as a Roman Catholic. I'm from Salem, Oregon, very far away from here. My dad, uh, my dad was a nurseryman, so he raised uh, flowers, iris and daisies. I grew up on about 100 acres just outside of Salem. I'm the sixth of eight kids. Um, I, you know, my family was great. I loved growing up in my family. Um, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a warm and good family. I went to Catholic schools for the first nine years of my life. That was a great experience as well. I was really, it was very difficult for me when the Catholic school closed due to lack of funds and I had to go to the public school in my 10th grade. I went from a school of 300 where I knew every single student to a student of three, a high school of three grades with 2,200 students, more than 700 per grade which I did not like. But, um, but the Lord was in charge of all that. I uh, went to the school. I, um, I mean, I gotta cut this story short. I, um, so I, I met this girl and um, she, we, we started dating and she grew up as a Lutheran, but she was newly converted this, uh, this was 1971. She was converted the, the uh, summer of 1970 to Christ. She had become a Christian. I didn't know she was a Christian. I didn't, I didn't know what a Christian was. Every once in a while, students on campus would ask me, are you a Christian? And I'd be like, I'm a Catholic. What do you mean? Of course I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. Well, I, don't under, I didn't even understand the question. It was like, that's all they'd ask me. Are you a Christian? And I'd be like, duh. Of course, I'm a Catholic, I'm, therefore I'm a Christian. That was the end of the discussion for me. But she started, she, she didn't really tell me she was a Christian, she just started telling me about her experience with Christ. And uh, she told me one day, I was reading my Bible last night and it said be quick to hear, slow to, slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And she said, God convicted me of that. Now, we had priests in our home and all that, and I, I, I had, had no negative experiences as a Catholic, but I'd never, ever, ever heard anybody talk like that, ever. And I was like, wow, that's weird. Sounds like you know God, you know? That, that was just something I'd never experienced. Then she'd say to me, yeah, I was praying last night, and I realized I'm too critical of my mom. And again, I was like, wow. You know, to evangelicals, that's very simple, right? Of course, we talk like that in our Bible studies all the time. But for me, never heard of such a thing. So then uh, I started going to a Bible study in her home, maybe 10 people at the Bible study, students at the school, all these other people talking like her. And I'd look around and I'd think, I didn't know people like this even existed, you know? People who talk about their relationship with God so it was very intriguing to me. Then, you know, I was very young, very immature. Our first date, I was 16 years old. 
So I told her I loved her. My wife is very feisty. I like that about her most of the time. I like that. And she said, no, you don't. And I said, yes, I do. No, you don't. We went back and forth. So, uh, and then she said, you don't know what love is. And she handed me the Living Bible. For, and she said, read 1 Corinthians 13. I read it. And I said, wow, this is beautiful. I'd never read the Bible as a Catholic, ever. And uh, I took it home and I started reading the Bible. I, in reading the Bible, I encountered Christ, right? In reading the Bible, some of the things I believed as a Catholic, right? Catholics taught me a lot of good things. They taught me, you know, about the resurrection and so forth and so on. I believed in Jesus was, I believed in the Trinity and, but, but I, but I did believe you were justified. I would have never used the word justified. Catholics don't talk like that. But I believe you'd get to heaven based on how good you were. And when I read the New Testament, I was like, that's not what the New Testament teaches. That, that really shocked me. So, yeah, and maybe about 45 days. I didn't, I didn't write down the date. It doesn't really matter. I became a believer. I was in a study hall at school. I brought my Bible in the study hall. It was the 1970s. Some of you know that. It was a very weird time if you were around then. And I brought my study hall, which was not that unusual. And uh, I just sensed the Lord speaking to me. It wasn't oral. And I sensed the Lord saying to me, will you give me your whole life? And that terrified me. First I thought, well, I'd have to give up Diane. That was my girlfriend. And then I thought, and maybe I'll have to be a missionary, and I didn't want to do that. But the, I'd already experienced enough of the love and beauty of Jesus that I just said, Lord, whatever you call me to do, I want to do. I want to, I want to, I want to be yours. So that's when I became a Christian. I ended up marrying that girl, you know? So we're married, four kids, 11 grandkids, 12th on the way. So, yeah, the, the Lord's been very good. I've been teaching 27 years at Southern and then 14 other years at other places. So I'm in my 41st year of teaching. That's been such a, such a blessing. So, yeah, I'm going to open it up at some point for questions. But now I'm going to talk about, see if we get them all. I'm going to talk about 10 themes re related to spiritual gifts. And, and the, first, the first theme is this. The gifts are to be exercised under the lordship of Christ. The gifts are to be exercised under the lordship of Christ. First uh, Corinthians 12, now concerning spiritual gift, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to know about these. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the Lordship of Christ is the criterion by which the gifts are assessed. You know, another way to put it, the, the, our gifts aren't a manifestation of ourself, fundamentally, or of our own abilities. There, our gifts are intended to communicate the truth that Jesus is Lord. Since Jesus is Lord, ecstatic experiences aren't, aren't the center of our faith. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not disregarding experiences. Experiences are wonderful. 
experiences should not be disregarded. But more important, right, is the acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. Some people, I've experienced this, you probably have too, they claim amazing experiences, but they don't live under the lordship of Christ in their everyday lives. We live in a world where subjective experience can be used as the measure of our spiritual lives. But Paul brings us back to the baseline, right? And what's the baseline? The, the lordship of Jesus. So I'm going to mention one implication of lordship. Since, since Jesus is Lord, and I really will hit this again, but one, as Lord, he, he, may give, he may give a person more than one gift. Nowhere does scripture say you necessarily only have one gift. A person may have one gift, two gifts, many gifts. So uh, we recognize God's, God's sovereignty. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 gives us another perspective on lordship. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So again, we see when we're serving, we're exercising our gifts under Christ's lordship. We, we exercise our gifts to grant grace, isn't that what Peter says, to grant grace to other people. And we, we serve under God's lordship when we're faithful, what does he say, in speaking so that we communicate the oracles of God. Isn't that amazing that God has given us the privilege of speaking his word to other people and in doing so we, we communicate grace to them. I don't think Paul's just, I mean Peter, not Paul, I don't think Peter's just talking about sermons here. I, we all share God's word in various ways, whether in small groups or one-to-one. Or -one. In addition, he says, right, to serve in the strength that God supplies. We are conscious of, I hope you're conscious of, of our, of our weakness. But, but also of his great strength. Typically, God doesn't let us feel too much the effectiveness of our gifts because he doesn't want us to be proud, right? He lets us feel our weakness so that his strength shines. And, then, and that way, God is glorified instead of us being glorified. God is glorified in everything we do through Jesus, as we serve under the Lordship of Christ. So that's my first, first truth. The second is don't overestimate, don't overestimate your giftedness. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul prefaces his discussion of spiritual gift with these words in Romans chapter 12, verse three. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed, distributed a measure of faith to each one. 
So I'm going to quote here the words of Adolf Schlatter on this verse. He's a German scholar, and if you don't fully understand this quote, I'd love this quote, but I'm going to explain it. Paul resists, says Schlatter, the danger that arises from the tempting power of the idea of equality. Each one wants to be and do like the other. No one wants to be less pious than the other. The danger that ensued from egalitarian endeavors was not the paralyzing of faith, nor the sinking of their efforts below what could be done in faith, but the exaggeration of their thinking toward impossible wishes and the inflammation of their will toward endeavors beyond their strength. Faith protects against this because it liberates from selfish striving after perfection and greatness, desires the divine will, and obeys God's leadership. If they act in faith, they purify themselves from their pretensions and proud independence, and they endeavor to utilize what they have been apportioned in their inner life and in their association with others. This dispels fantasies and opens the eyes to reality. I think that is a very deep comment, but let me explain further. I think what is Paul saying, and I think Schlatter's explaining it, recognize what God made you to be. Don't, don't, don't try to be what you're not. This is very practical, isn't it? Don't try to imitate others and live on the basis of their faith, Paul's saying. Don't, don't try to be a missionary if God hasn't called you to be a missionary. We have had students who are, get excited about God, maybe in their 30s, 40s, even 50s, and think they're called to come to the seminary, and they come to the seminary and look, we're glad they're excited about God, but that doesn't mean they're called to the ministry, and sometimes they're very disappointed because for various reasons they're not gifted to be in the ministry. Joy in the Lord doesn't necessarily mean you should be in the formal ministry. We need enthusiastic believers in law offices, in banks, in service industries, as plumbers, electricians, and builders, and secretaries, and on and on it goes, right? So what is Paul saying here? Assess your gifts realistically. Maybe you're not gifted musically. Maybe you're not an eloquent speaker, but you notice those in pain, and you reach out to them. That's the gift of mercy, isn't it? Or you willingly serve behind, behind the scenes. That's the gift of helps. Man, every church needs a lot of people like that. So what is Paul saying? Bloom, bloom where God has planted you. Find, find the niche God has put you in and be content with that. Be content with what God has given you in life and live with all your strength to the glory of God. How many people in life live with unhappiness? They're unhappy. Why? They're not content with what God has given them. I think of 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, where Paul basically says, don't try to change your station in life. I don't think it's wrong to do that. But he's saying, don't think you'll be more effective if you're doing something else. God's put you in a certain place. It's not wrong to change, but don't, don't, 
don't indulge in the fantasy of, oh, if I were only doing something else, if only I didn't live the life I live. I, I, a seminary student who got his PhD wrote me about this very thing today. He's like, yeah, I've, I, I'm in a small church. My life hasn't turned out the way I wanted to be. I, I couldn't teach. And I said, that's where God's put you. You know, serve where you are. Don't, don't long for a greatness. What is Paul saying? Don't long for a greatness that God didn't intend you to have. So Paul says, be sensible about yourself. Don't think too highly of yourselves. Those who aren't content in their lives are very likely overestimating their gifts. And that's a sad way to live at the end of the day. So that's the second truth. Be sensible, right, in terms of our understanding of the gifts. Then uh, thirdly, the variety in gifts, the variety in our gifts, and the results of our gifts come from God himself. So the variety and the results come from God. That, that's pretty similar to what I just said. So that, you know, the desire for equality, the desire, I think that's a huge problem in American society, right? Equality is a good thing, but Americans, it's out of whack in American society, right? The desire for equality, the desire for everyone to be the same, goes against one of God's fundamental purposes in giving the gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through verse 6, Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. By the way, that's a beautiful, as I'm sure you know, Trinitarian text. He says the same spirit, the same Lord, Jesus Christ, and the same God, the Father, right? So we have a beautiful Trinitarian uh, text here, which, you know, there's a number of those in the New Testament. The gifts are given by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So Paul never thought that each person in the church would have the same gift, nor does he think they should have the same gift. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 through 31, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles. By the way, I'm not defining these gifts. If you want me to, you can ask questions later. So I'm not... I'm not That'd take a while, right, to define all these. But first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. I think, I think Paul really means these are m more important for the life and the edification of the church. So I'm not, I'm not surprised he says apostles, prophets, teachers. Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. He, now, I don't think the order goes all the way down. I don't think Paul's trying to rank all the way down. But it's no accident he puts tongues last because that's what the Corinthians were entranced with. And Paul's goal in these chapters is not to criticize the gift of tongues. It's a gift of God, right? But to to put it in its proper place. 
Are all apostles? What's the answer? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all do miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in other tongues? No. Do all interpret tongues? No. But desire the greater gifts. So what is Paul saying? There's variety, right? Not everybody has the same gift. Recognize, recognize that. So that's pretty basic, right? Fourth, I mean, most of these truths are pretty basic, but they're practical, right? They're helpful to us. Fourth, different gifts, different gifts don't mean that we're inferior or superior. Different gifts don't mean we are inferior or superior. You know, how we feel about our gifts is a central part of what Paul teaches here. And so we, we see here, he talks about the unity and the diversity of the body of Christ. So, 1 Corinthians 12, again, starting in verse 14. Even so, the body, the body of Christ, right, the church, is not made up of one part, but of many. Just as, like the human body is made up of, many, of a, different members, but it's a unified entity, right? So you see the unity and the diversity in the picture of the body. No member of the body is inferior. Verse 15 of chapter 12. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm only an ugly foot. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm, I'm inferior. I'm, I'm an ugly foot. I'm not a beautiful hand. If the foot should say that, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. So, right? The, every, every member of the body is needed. So he's speaking to the members of the church who feel inferiority, right? Which can be a huge problem. Or, or verse 16, if the ear should say, I'm an ugly ear. I'm an ugly ear because I'm not an eye. I mean, eyes are beautiful, ripened ears. Because of that, I don't belong to the body. It is not for that reason any less a part of the body. Yeah, ears are so important, you know. Uh, not, you know, our little, our, one of our, we have, I told you we had 11 grandchildren, 12th on the way. So one of our grandchildren, she's, she's deaf in one ear. And, and, you know, we're praying for her. Pray for her if you think about it because she's kind of losing her hearing in the other ear. So we're very concerned. She's only nine years old. You know, that ear is important, isn't it? As a member of the body, you know, we're all very concerned about her that she doesn't lose her hearing in both ears. I mean, God's in control, but we're praying that won't happen. So every part of the body matters, doesn't it? The ear is not an inferior part of the body. It's very important for the body to function. The body of Christ is composed of many members. There's not a boring kind of sameness. You know, it's tempting, very tempting, for us to compare ourselves with others and to feel what? Inferior. We, we, you know, our, our culture, you know, American culture is competitive. That's, there's a good thing in that, isn't there? But we, we can constantly live and think about how we stack up compared to others, and whether we live up to what we should be in the eyes of others. And if we feel like we don't, there can be a lot of insecurity that's bred in our lives, a lot of feelings of inferiority. So we, we see that with the foot and the, and the ear, don't we? Both members, what does Paul say? They're just so, 
so important. You know, feelings of inferiority are a kind of inverted pride, aren't they? When you're, you know, sometimes that's not acknowledged, but it's true, because if you're feeling inferior, you're like, I'm not, I wanna be noticed more. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not noticed the way I should be. But, but I think it's interesting, Paul, not that they, when Paul doesn't rebuke them here for pride, though. He doesn't say that. He, instead, Paul reminds them, hey, you're made in God's image, and you have a valuable role to, to play. We, we don't just say to a person who's feeling inferior, and we all feel inferior at times, right? We're all, we're all inferior at some things. We don't just say to a person like that, well, you're proud. You're suffering in, from inferiority, you're, you're, you're proud. No, yeah, maybe, maybe there's a place for that. But Paul reminds them how important, what an important role they play in the body. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't rebuke them, he encourages them, doesn't he? So if, if you think, I don't have any gifts, I'm of no value to anyone, and, and, and almost everyone feels that way sometime. I've had people say that to me, right? I don't, I, just, I can't do that well, I can't do that well. But, you know, I always say to a person who's saying that to me, if I know them, I know what their gifts are. I'll say, but look, look, you're so good at that. Do you see what a gift that is to people, you know? I'm, I know a person who's super friendly, but not as good not as good maybe at teaching, but I say, hey, you're so warm. You help people feel a part of the church. That's such, a, such an important thing. Not everybody has that gift, right? You've, you've got that gift. God has given each one of us faith, and each one of us can be a significant help to other people. We, 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 we had a next door neighbor who was a member of our church and she was very quiet and introverted. But you know what? She especially helped other people in the church who were quiet and introverted. She had a ministry to those people. I, I saw that and I watched it because she could reach out to them because she knew how they felt. And she had a special ministry to the people struggling with those kind of things. And that was just so encouraging to me. So what's Paul saying? Don't reject what God has done in your life by putting yourself down. You know, you may feel, oh, my, 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 my gifts, they're insignificant, they're not vital, but that's a mistake, isn't it? The contribution of every member of the body matters. What you contribute to your church is crucial. So if you're feeling inferior, then your feelings as is so often the case with our feelings, our feelings are, your feelings are off track, right? Your feelings don't represent reality. So that, that's, that's, this, this point has several points. In the same way, no member is comprehensive. No member is inferior, no member is comprehensive. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? This is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 17. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the members in the body just as he wanted. And if, there were, if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Imagine 
if my body were only an eye and a giant eye rolled up here tonight, that would be grotesque, wouldn't it? Would it not? You know? Wouldn't that be grotesque if we were all just massive ears? You know? Uh, but eyes, right? Eyes without ears, they're not complete bodies. Ears without noses are not complete bodies. So no member of the, no member of the church is comprehensive. No, no one member can keep the church going. That's what he's saying, right? Every, every member matters. Body, bodies, by definition, are made up of many members. Otherwise, they don't function as bodies. Imagine, I love, I grew up, you know, I grew up with baseball, basketball, football. Those are the three sports I like. I don't recognize any other sports as legitimate. I'm just kidding. But I, I don't, I really don't like, well, I kind of like, I, my wife played high school tennis, so I got into tennis some. But um, imagine a baseball pitcher who's awesome, you know? And there's lots of, lots of great pitchers. Justin Verlander's had a great career, right? Or Max Scherzer, who I just saw got hurt the other day. He's out for the season, right? But, but what's a pitcher without a catcher, <laughs> right? You can't pitch without a catcher. And even the best pitchers don't strike out everybody. They need the people in the field, right? They need the first baseman, the outfielders, and so forth and so on. No, no pitcher can win a game by himself. It's a team. And, that, that, and that's the same in so many areas of life. That's the same in a business, too, right? No, no business works effectively. That's a very small business, I guess, if you do all the jobs yourself. So... We need each other. Remember what this verse doesn't say. It doesn't say, well, we belong to one another if we feel, so I'm hitting on that theme, right? We belong to one another if we feel especially close to one another. Our belonging to one another isn't based on our feelings. We, you know, I have seven brothers and sisters. Guess what? I didn't choose a single one of them. And they didn't choose me either, right? We're just plopped into the same family. There we are. These are my brothers and sisters. That's the way it is in the church too, isn't it? We don't, the church doesn't operate by, let's choose the people we want most to be here. God brings to us people, all kinds of people, very different people, sometimes really challenging people, at least to us, right? But we belong to one another. We're family, aren't we? We're, we're members of the same body. Because our, our head and, and our hands are united to one another because they feel especially close to one another. Our unity as a body is a fact. Whether you feel it or not, it's a fact. So, next, still on the same point. No member is superior. We, we, we really saw this in Romans 12, 3, but he hits it from a different angle. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 24. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that, that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor and our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect which our respectable parts do not need an eye that thinks it could dispense with a hand is in big trouble 
especially if you wear contacts, right? How do you put them in, right? A head may have lots of ideas about what it can accomplish, but how can it accomplish anything without the rest of the body, right? So, so Paul says those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and less necessary are crucial to the smooth running of the body. You know, you know that even if you get a trivial injury, right? Um, you know, the other day, I'm old now, you know, we were watching our grandkids. I wish I could say something really dramatic. I'm sitting at the kitchen table eating. I got up really fast and I sprained my foot. My foot just blew up and I'm like, I, I got up fast, but still, I, uh, how did you sprain your foot? Would, by getting up from the table. Like, okay, you know, but, but it immediately, you know, it, it, you know, I got a huge bruise on it was, that was there for two or three weeks and it, it affected my body. Not that bad, but right? Just our body, we, we recognize when things go wrong. We need every member of the body to function well, don't we? And every member of the body is important. So, okay, fifth, our gift, our gift is not to be ascribed to our own spirituality, but to the sovereignty of the Spirit. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians, uh, several verses in 1 Corinthians again. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. A manifestation of the Spirit, that, I, I like that. That's the definition of a spiritual gift, a manifestation of the Spirit. What's, what's a spiritual gift? It's a manifestation of the Spirit. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Hey, is Paul trying to emphasize something? Right? To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, God has appointed these in the church. And there's our list, right? First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So the gift you have doesn't reflect what you've accomplished. It doesn't signify what you've chosen. It signifies what God has decided and determined and willed that you'd have. God gave it to you for your own, his own wise purposes for the sake of the church. You know, Augustine, the great church father, in his debates with Pelagius, Pelagius thought basically we could be perfect, Augustine said again and again to Pelagius in the debates, he quoted a particular verse from 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And what does that verse say? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? So 
What gift do we have that we didn't receive? God, God, God has given us the gifts we've had. God, God has made each one of us according to his own wise purposes. So let's praise and give thanks to God. Are you praising and giving thanks to God for the way he's made you? That's what he's saying. He, he affirms it's God's, it's God's work who has made you in, in a particular way. So, um, sixth, I'm going kind of fast, but I was going to, I'm going to try and finish, we're going to have a break, and I'm going to try and finish a little early and do some Q&A. So we can, you can ask some things. Sixth, um, God has given us gifts to build up the body. God has given us gifts to build up the body, to bring unity to the church, and to edify the church, not to fragment the church. So I'm going to read first Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets. Remember, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. There it is, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and, in, and the knowledge of the Son of God, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So, what do we glean from this text? The gifts were not given so that we could marvel over our own abilities, right? The, the, our, so many people think this next thing, right? Even though maybe they deny it. But the gifts were not given so we, so we would experience satisfaction and fulfillment in our lives. I mean. They do bring satisfaction and fulfillment, but that's not why they were given, right? That's not their fundamental purpose. The gifts were not given so we could realize our self-potential. The, 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 it's obvious, isn't it, what I'm saying? This is so, it's basic. Basically, everything I'm saying is really basic. The gifts were given so we could equip and strengthen others. The gifts are an expression, what, of the love of Christ. Why did Christ come to the earth? to die for our sake and our salvation. Christ came for the sake of others to build them up, right? So, so that's what we do. So the gifts, the gifts are what? Other-centered. They're not, they're not, they're not self-centered. They're, they're, they're intended to strengthen other people. So, you know, when we come and gather together, our antennae are up to see how 
we can serve others as we come together. How can we, how can we build up other people with your unique personality, right? With the way God's made you. But, but people know, don't they? People know if you care about them. A quiet person likes, loves people in a different way than an extroverted person, of course. But, but people who love other people, people know that. It's, it's obvious. 1 Corinthians 12, God has put the body together giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So not, there it is, right? That's why he did it. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I think this is one of the most important passages about the gift. God, God gave us the gifts so we could love each other, didn't he? We demonstrate as we use our gifts that we care about what's happening in one another's lives. And, and that's what it means to be church. And I'm sure it's true in this church, but I don't know this church, right? But if, if one of your members is hurting, you hurt with them, right? And if one of your members is rejoicing, you rejoice with them. That's what it means to exercise the gifts. So the gifts are cruciform. They reveal the same kind of love as I just said that Christ displayed on the cross. So when Chandler does his sermons, right, he's preparing because he loves you, right? That's the motivation behind it. He wants to build you up. Or whoever works on the sound, they work on the sound because they love you, you know? Maybe it's not so upfront, not so visible, but the person who's working on the sound, that's loving, isn't it? That's caring for one another. And when you meet with people individually, that's, that's a way of, of caring for people. You know, it's an amazing thing. My wife is fantastic at this, but just having people over to your house, that's amazing. A lot of people don't do it. A lot of international students, a lot of international students, you know, no American ever invites them over, ever. So just, or some people don't like having people over to their house for various reasons, but a cup of coffee, going out for a meal, something, hanging out with people. There's a lot of people who want to be loved, right? And it's just to be cared for, just to have someone to talk to for a period of time. But none of us can do it alone, right? So, you know, your, your pastoral staff can't do it all, right? That's why there's a body. That's so wonderful. We, we, you, you need the whole body to cover everybody because there's so many people, right? Even, I don't know what the size of your church is, around 100 or 150 something, I think they said. But that's still a lot of people. No, no, no you know, your, your pastoral staff can't cover 100 people well to really know them. But, but people... People are hungry to be loved and cared for. So we ought not to be thinking, here's a danger. Are people loving me like that here? Right? You can, you can hear this. Hey, that's right. Why aren't people loving me that way? But that's not the way to think, is it? The way to think is, are you loving people like that? It isn't, are, am I being loved like that? Are, are, are you reaching out to those who are hurting? Are you... Are you rejoicing with those who rejoice? I mean, that, if you're not used to doing it, right? That could be taking a risk, right? Putting yourself out there a little bit. 
Because it's very easy, I think, in our culture, especially because of this now, it's very easy for us to all go internal to ourselves, right? And not, not reach out to other people in that, in that kind of way. Okay, so we're going to have a break. We said we're going to have a break, 6.50. We're going to have like a 45-minute break. No, I'm just kidding. How long? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All righty, our five minutes went to 15, right? That's okay. That's all right. Okay, I'm going to talk about maybe four more things. See how long that takes now. We'll open it up if you want to talk. The baptism in the spirit, more, a little more of a theological thing, occurs at conversion. For by one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were all baptized in the one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Pentecostals and charismatics have often argued that the baptism of the spirit occurs after conversion, and typically that it involves an empowering for service. Even Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great 20th century preacher, argued something rather similar. There are only two texts that actually speak of the baptism of the Spirit in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, Mark chapter 1, verse 8, Luke chapter 3, verse 16, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and Acts 11, verse 16, all refer to the baptism of the Spirit predicted by John the Baptist and fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So once we quote these verses, there's five verses, but they're all saying the same thing, and they're all quoting John the Baptist, right? And the only other verse is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So, Matthew 12, Matthew 3, verse 11 says, I baptize you, this is John the Baptist speaking, right? I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what Mark 1, 8 says, Luke 3, 16, Acts 1, 5, Acts 11, 16. Notice in these verses, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ are the baptizers, but they use different elements, right? John baptizes with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the baptizer, and the Holy Spirit is the element in which, like water, or with which, someone was baptized. I suggest 1 Corinthians 12, 13 should be translated similarly. The verb is actually passive, and so should be translated like this. We were all baptized with or in the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ. Some versions say we were baptized by the Spirit, but I think the passive verb and the parallels suggest that Jesus Christ is the baptizer and the Spirit is the person in which one is plunged at baptism. Because baptism, right, what does baptism mean? Baptism is just a transliteration of the Greek word. Guess what the Greek word for baptism is? This is going to be a quiz. It's going to be really tough. It's baptisma, right? So you recognize what did English do? The English just took over the word. It didn't translate it, right? It just put it into English letters. So... So I, th I think the word baptism, I'm a Baptist, right? I think it means to be plunged in or immersed in. You're going to be plunged or immersed in the Spirit. 
and the, and the Gospels are saying the same thing. It's clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that the baptism with the Spirit occurs at conversion. So it cannot be a second blessing type of experience. Because what does Paul emphasize? All Christians were baptized with the Spirit. Not just some. Uh, it does, it isn't, he says all have been baptized in the Spirit, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. I mean, how could, could he be clear, right? Everybody. Then he, he says again, we were all given one spirit to drink. So, I, th I think, you know, does God do second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, etc. works after we're saved? Of course. But, I, but, I, but the baptism with the spirit is an initial experience. Actually, I think the word baptism itself suggests that. For in Paul's mind, the baptism of the Spirit is inevitably linked with baptism with water, right? And that's when, for Baptists anyway, that's associated with conversion, isn't it? You're baptized with water, you're baptized with the Spirit at conversion. That's, that's what we see in the New Testament over and over again, right? People get saved and they get baptized. So, um, you know, what is Paul saying? It's imagine, imagine you're plunged down into a pool of water, and this water is the best water in the world to drink. It's the water of life to you. That's what happens when you're saved. You're plunged down into the spirit, so to speak, right? And you drink them in. And, and Paul says, that happened when you were saved. You're plunged into the spirit by Jesus. We share a common bond in Christ because we've all been immersed with the Spirit. So, to say, and I love my charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters, we love them. Um, that's the most important thing, isn't it? The most important thing isn't to argue with people. I've been around too long to love arguing with people. We love them. But... But we do want to say what the Bible says. And we want to say, if, if you're saying that some Christians haven't been baptized with the Spirit, it's like they're not members of the church, right? Because you're baptized into the body of Christ. So that, no, that's not what the Bible says. Anyone who's a Christian has been baptized with the Spirit into the body of Christ of the church. We've all had that experience. Praise the Lord. So, that's, that's the most theological thing of, of these 10 points. Eighth, edification, so I'm just going through 10 and then we'll stop. Edification comes especially through the mind, through understandable teaching. Okay, now I'm going to read a really long passage and then I'm going to explain it. First Corinthians 14 and I'm going to read 19 verses. So can you hang with me around 7 o'clock? Saturday night, after a long week, maybe a long day. But here we go. 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement and consolation. 
This person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Teaching, Even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether the flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen, that you're giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others than 10,000 words in another tongue. Now that's a long passage, but I read the whole thing because I think Paul's making one big point. The focus, if you caught it, is on edification comes from understanding. If a distinct melody is not played on a flute or a harp, but senseless anarchy, then people don't recognize it, well, as music, right? Similarly, in verse eight, if a trumpeter doesn't blow the trumpet forcefully and clearly, it will not be clear that he's sounding the alarm for war. Paul says, if you speak in tongues without an interpretation in the assembly, it's useless. It's like speaking into the air with no one there. It's all sound and fury, as Shakespeare said, right? Sound and fury signifying nothing. We are only edified or strengthened if we understand what is being said. Paul uses an illustration from foreign languages in verses 10 and 11. All, all languages have meaning, don't they? But if we don't understand what others are saying, we're not helped when they speak in their languages, other languages. So I've traveled a lot, right? I was this summer, I was in the Netherlands, I was in Germany, I've been in Cameroon, so forth and so on. If I don't know, you know, I'm in Germany and Netherlands, I heard people speaking Dutch and German, I can read a little bit of German, but they're too fast speaking. I can't keep up. And um, 
yeah, I, I can understand. Look, sounded interesting, right? But I, I was on the outside. I, I couldn't. I wasn't edified by their conversations, right? I my I told you at the beginning that I, my dad ran a nursery. We had we'd hire uh, we hired a lot of Hispanics. We hired, and um, they would you know a lot of times they'd be together and they'd be laughing and talking and have a great time, and I'd think, wow, what are they laughing and talking about? That seems really fun, but I don't know Spanish, right? I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't enter in. That's what Paul says in verse twelve. You want to when you gather together. It's, people aren't edified unless they understand. The church is edified through understandable words. So the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he would interpret. For edification comes when the mind is involved fruitfully. Uh, verse 16, if you praise with the Spirit... How will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you're saying? Edification comes when we know and understand what others are saying. It would be utterly phony and false if you didn't understand my language to say I agree. I agree with that, what that person just said, but you don't know what I just said. Um, have, have you ever spoken to a person whom it was difficult to understand. I, my, my aunt, my beloved aunt, she, she was just an amazing person, but she got mouth cancer, and she had radical surgery. And then she'd call me on the phone sometimes, and her diction changed, right? I had a really hard time on the phone trying to figure out often what she was trying to say to me. I hated saying again and again, what? Say it again. Sometimes I'd fake it even. Like, well, I don't know, I think that's what she said. But it's really made communication difficult, you know, trying to figure out what she's saying. That, that, that's what Paul's saying here, right? Our, our conversations, the level of edification, even in our conversations, would weigh down, sadly, because I had a, such a hard time understanding her. Paul, verse 18, is thankful that he speaks in tongues more than all of them. But in the church, he'd rather engage in the mind. Better to speak five understandable words than 10,000 words no one gets, he says. You know, Paul just says the same thing again and again, doesn't he, in these verses? Just a bunch of different ways. Protestants have always believed in education and in the importance of reading because we believe People are strengthened in their relationship with God as they understand. Protestants have always believed in Bible reading. Ephesians 3, 4, Paul says, by reading this, by reading this, ah, by reading this, you're able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. How? By reading this, you understand it. By, by, under, by reading and understanding what I'm saying. We, have, we had some missionaries from uh, Clifton go out and they... They went to a tribe in Papua New Guinea. They figured out how to, uh, they figured out, they learned their language. They, they put it into writing. They uh, taught the people the gospel. This took five years, right? You know, that sounds easy. <laughs> that was a five-year project. 
They shared the gospel. Many of the tribal members became Christian. And now, what are they doing now? It's 20 years later. They're, 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 uh, they're, they've built a school because they said these people need to be educated to face the modern world because the modern world's coming, right, to them. And they need to be educated. So that's the greatest reason for education. Protestants have always believed in it, to read and understand God's word. You know, God, God, could, have, God could have used a number of means to strengthen us. He could have just zapped us, right, when we became Christians. We could be instantly transformed. We, we could go into a little room with an energy field and then shazam, now we come spiritual and totally changed. But God desires we grow into our relationship with him slowly through understanding. And I think back to when I was a young Christian, I had some really weird ideas about things. I had really weird ideas about God's will, especially. Maybe some might think, well, we become more like God as we sit in a posture of meditation and we chant a mantra again and again, like, Sakai um, Sakai um. I don't, I don't know if that's a mantra. I'm making that one up, right? But, you know, but that, the text tells us that's not how we grow, right? We grow through the mind. Some, some people might say, you know, the key to my spiritual life is speaking in tongues. But Paul says, no, 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 no. He's not against speaking in tongues. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. But he says, understanding's more important than that. Uh, our relationship with God is predicated on understanding him. Mark Dever, maybe you've heard of him, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He points out, we may feel we have a good relationship with our dog, but if we came home from church and our dog talked to us, uh, the relationship would dramatically change, would it not? So... So the primary pathway to spiritual growth is not even prayer, as important as that is, because prayer, what, feeds off the word of God. Prayer is to be informed by truth, isn't it? The understanding comes from the scriptures. Without, without scripture, our prayers could be remarkably off-center. Don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed, what? But, but be transformed, I'm sorry, by the renewal of your mind, right? So, edification comes through understanding. Ninth, focus, focus on your gifts. Focus on your gifts. Romans 12, 6 through 8. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. If giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Gifts, again, are a sign of God's grace and love. But here we see the diversity of the body again, right? We're not all the same. So in verses 7 and 8, Paul lists three gifts and says you should concentrate on that gift. Those who have the gift of serving should concentrate on serving. Those with the gift of teaching should focus on teaching. Those who have a gift of exhortation and encouragement should devote themselves to encouraging others. And I think what Paul says applies to all the gifts, and it's very practical. We, we should put our primary energy, our energies, into the gifts we have, right? Now, now I'm not saying we don't do the other gifts. Like, hey, I, I'm a teacher. I don't serve. 
I don't, you know, hey, I don't do diapers. I got a spiritual gift, you know. Um, hey, hey, I don't do that. I have this gift. I don't do evangelism. I'm just a teacher, you know. No, no, obviously that's not what Paul's saying. We, we serve in every way. We help out in every way we can. But life is short. And, and God has designed the body so that it functions best when we concentrate on, I'm not saying the only thing, right? We concentrate on the gifts we have. So spend your time maximizing the particular gift God has given you. That's not unspiritual. That's wisdom isn't it? I remember a student coming to me years ago. We have a Greek and Hebrew program that's very intensive. You don't have to take that track, but a lot of students want to take that track. Hey, they want to be great in the scriptures. They want to know the original languages. They want to know the Hebrew and the Greek. But he was super discouraged because he said, I'm studying and I'm studying the Greek and Hebrew. I'm doing terrible. I'm doing terrible in these classes. I'm supposed to be this great Greek student. That's what God's called me to be, but I'm not. I'm not a great Greek student at all. Now, of course, we have to work hard at things we're not good at, right? That's true for all of us. But I told him, I said, hey. I mean, I probed into how hard he was studying, right? It wasn't the first two weeks of the class, right? I said, hey. Maybe God's trying to tell you something about yourself. Maybe that's not your gift, right? Maybe you came in with this conception of what you're good at, but that's really not, that's really not the way you're wired. Don't beat yourself up about that. Find, find where you flourish and go in that direction. Don't try to be what you're not. Just because a lot of these other students are good at Greek and Hebrew, doesn't mean you have to be, that has to be your area of concentration. And man, he was so visibly relieved and happy because he, he just felt this outside pressure to be something that he wasn't, you know? And, I, and, and just f find what you're gifted in, right? Don't ignore areas where we're weak, but focus our energy where we're strong. Rejoice in the gifts God has given us, right? So, uh, three other specific exhortations that I think are helpful. Those, those who give money should do so generously, Paul says. Some people have a particular gift. We're all to be generous, but some people have a particular gift of giving. God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, right? So, what does Paul say here? If you have a gift of giving, beware... Watch out, even if you have a gift. A stingy and crabby spirit could take hold of you, right? Ask God to continue to give you a spirit of lavishness and delight. I and mean, that's true of all of us, but especially those who have a special gift in that area. Don't, don't give for the praise of people, but for the glory of God. Remember Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I'm not, I'm not advocating the health and wealth gospel, right? I'm not saying that. But we're to give gladly knowing that God will supply our needs. Not all our wants, but he supplies our needs. Remember the Macedonians were poor, not rich, but they gave generously. Second, the one who leads is to do so with zeal and diligence. I think that's so interesting because leaders have a great responsibility 
But many leaders aren't very accountable to others because they're in charge. Often there isn't a lot of built-in accountability with how leaders spend their time, right? So there's a freedom if you're a leader to do what you want with your time. People often aren't watching. So Paul exhorts leaders, use your time well. Be diligent. Work hard. Remember, God's watching over you in your ministry. He's assessing your work. We're not to impose our selfish will on others, but to serve others. Leaders, leaders must continue to listen to others to whom they're leading. Right? That can be a big problem. Leaders quit listening to anybody else, right? Of course, I mean, there's issues for followers too, but here I'm talking about leaders. Leaders can be prone to trust in themselves and think they know all the answers, but nobody knows all the answers. I'm, how many leaders have gotten into trouble because of this, right? Uh, I, I've been struck lately, you know, I hear these stories, right? Leaders of huge churches, how they've fallen because they've gotten to the top and then there's no one they're accountable to anymore. And that's just really, really terrible. There's no check on their authority. And then they start exercising their leadership in abusive ways. So that's, that's dangerous. Uh, thirdly, if your gift is mercy, do so with cheerfulness. All of us are to show mercy to others, but some have a particular gift of showing mercy. I, th I think my wife definitely has this gift a thousand, in a thousand ways. But if you have that gift, you're, you're helping others a lot, right? And what does Paul say here? Yeah, you, you could lose your joy. I think that's what he's saying. You could lose your joy. Uh, you got to keep remembering God's shown mercy to you. It's got to flow out of that, doesn't it? If you if you forget that, you can you you can you can you can get crabby in 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 in, in exercising this gift. So so he says, exercise the gift with the right attitude and the right spirit. All these gifts, we need a fresh outpouring of God's grace in Jesus every day, and 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 to thank Him for. His love for us. So, I think I'm going to stop here because it's 7:32. The third, my tenth thing is First Corinthians 13. More important than all the gifts is love. Love is the greatest thing. But it's 7:30, and I told Chandler and Cody I was going to try and stop about 7:30. That's actually 7:32. So, I'm going to open up for questions. You can ask me anything you want.